Beyond the, Beyond the Headlines. This is World Insight. Hello and welcome to World Insight with me, Tian Wei. Today, let's continue our series of dialogue with people in the know from China and the U.S. after the two presidents' meeting in San Francisco. Here is Christopher Thomas, chairman of Integrated Insights and senior fellow with the Brookings Institution on AI governance and the space of cooperation and consultation between China and the U.S. in the field. Chris, good to see you. Is it a tech war? I don't believe there's a tech war because I do a lot of business, global business in the technology space. And even today, despite so many geopolitical problems, 95% of the products, technology, IP, and people in the technology industry move freely between the two countries. There's an enormous amount of business that still happens today. Uh, you know, major companies have very large businesses in China. They manufacture a lot of products in China. They have engineering teams in China. And great Chinese companies, if you open up the box and look inside, there's a lot of American technology inside. Maybe a little bit less than before, but actually the bilateral collaboration at the industry level is still quite high. There's a lot of international companies, global companies, in China for China. That's the slogan. You also see Chinese and especially American global companies working with the third party, for example, in Southeast Asia or other parts of the world, in order to capture uh, the benefits of each other's markets and technologies. Are these going to be the latest updates of the ecosystem? Will this be a long trend or you think things are changing all the time? Well, this industry is always changing all the time because if you don't, you, things change because you innovate. Innovate changes the rules, so you have to adjust to it. There's a lot of other factors and not all geopolitics is bad. You mentioned things like Middle East, Southeast Asia, uh, they're getting more involved in the technology industry because they have talents, they have markets, they have engineers, and they say, hey, we want to be part of this. And if we can get smart Vietnamese or smart Indonesians or s smart Saudis solving these problems, doing R&D, doing technology and adding to the world, why not? Now, some of this change in the supply chain is due to geopolitics. But as I've always learned, I've always told my clients, don't ever do something just because the government wants you to do it. Because if there's not an economic logic, eventually that effort will fail and you will make the government more angry when it fails than if you say no. So the critical thing is you need to, and this is very challenging in today's world, you need to weave together a technological understanding, a business understanding, and a geopolitical understanding into a strategy that makes sense for all three. Chris, I remember in one of your talks, you warned about the danger of so-called decoupled AI before AI really takes off. Now, what you exactly meant by saying this? How much is this danger? So of course, we have to regulate AI for a lot of reasons. One reason is to avoid negative consequences of machines with too much authority and not enough human oversight. That's oftentimes military or national security. But I'm talking about economically, the use of AI for business. What would decoupling be? Well, I think it'd be very simple. In China and in the Chinese sphere, you're only using Chinese large language models running on Chinese systems with Chinese data under Chinese government oversight. And in the US and US sphere, you have the opposite, where there's no Chinese involvement or no U.S. involvement in the Chinese market. That would be de facto 
prior to the fact decoupling. I don't think we're there yet, but I think it is incumbent on governments to frankly have those hard conversations about basically saying, we don't agree on everything. There's always going to be underlying issues, but can we come up with a framework that would enable Chinese innovation into the U.S. market and U.S. innovation into China under fair and reciprocal rules? Now, you've been in the circle for a long time. Is there some specific suggestion that should be in that framework? Understanding that there is likely to be uh, some kinds of mechanism between China and the United States in terms of discussion on AI. Well, I think one of the things that people are focusing on right now is model verification and model review, which basically says we are going to be using these large language models to answer questions and drive decisions. We have a right as leaders of our people to understand if those models are doing the right thing. Are they building in bias? Are they misleading us? Are they leading to danger? Are they endangering welfare? And so there's a real desire to have a regulatory framework to review models, not to make sure they're correct, but to make sure that the risks are minimized. Now, if the U.S. and China could come together and come up with an overlapping or aligned model review framework that actually had potentially parties from both countries working together so there's a common set of rules, then we may not be able to solve the data issues, the semiconductor issues, but at least we'd be able to say this model is approved by this joint commission and would enable the innovation from both countries to spread globally. So I think we have an opportunity in the model review framework area. One could imagine the pressure if that were the case on that specific commission or platform, whether to approve or not. Well, anybody who's brave enough to get into these areas has to have some courage. That's true. What we see is an AI summit in the UK in which relevant parties participated, including China and the United States. We also see the UN establish a panel of experts coming from very different economies, trying to put their understanding of the issue and their concerns on the table and share with one another to create better understanding at least. So um, what kind of complementary role do you see China and the U.S. discussion could be providing to these already existing, already uh, happening uh, phenomenon, events, and mechanisms? Multilateralism is important because even though the U.S. and China are leading in this technology, this is a technology that impacts all of us. And so why should one country or two countries make the rules that impact the world? At the same time, if we leave the decisions up to a group of 150 countries, we may be still debating this in 10 years. So we have to find a way to get both of them to work together. I'm not an expert on the regulatory process, but that probably means something like a two-track, where both, both countries agree and say, this is the overlapping set of areas where we're going to agree. Maybe it's on data transfer, maybe it's on model review, maybe it's on ensuring uh, that there's human oversight of critical activities. And we're going to create a common set of rules. And then I'm sure that if the U.S. and China were to effectively bring in partners such as in Europe and other parts of Asia, that would much more quickly get into the multilateral bodies and have some feedback back. Now, of course, both parties would have to listen to the outside world. And so that would have to be a balancing act. But I, I think, frankly, due to their market position, I think the U.S. and China have to take the lead and show leadership on this and then work with the world to make sure it works for the world. So 
whether it's too little too late, or this is at least one of those processes that we can work together to figure out a process at least. So you're, you're bringing up a, a difficult thing. Even though regulating AI has challenges, the innovation problem, the pacing problem, uh, all of these things, I think countries still must do it because it's such a powerful technology. And right now it's concentrated in the hands of a very few. We need to make sure that it works for the world. There's a lot of debates about what that would be. Too little, too late. Everyone has a debate about when AI will become actually uh, AGI, generally intelligent. People smarter than me think it's earlier or later, but just because something's hard means we shouldn't have to do it. But it does mean we need to pick up the pace and have a cadence. Personally, I think on the big issues that happen between the US and China, we should have standing discussions. Instead of once every three months have a summit, you should have teams working every single day on this together with direct line telephone to the leadership that when they get to a point where the teams are aligned, we can make decisions. So I agree it could be too little too late, but what's the other, yes, what's the other option, that. right? What other option do we have? We can't, we, we have realized that we can't simply let technology be completely unfettered, but we can't control it, so we have to figure out that balance sooner than later. So how to seek truth from facts, uh, as the Chinese say, and how to identify the fake from the right ones, uh, from, from, the, uh, from the true ones, that's always uh, challenging. Uh, how do you see these uh, you know, different layers of complexity adding to the earlier task, as you said, uh, to demystify the technologies? Well, I think there's two different things. First of all, we have a mechanism in place that has worked for many years about separating facts from made-up imaginary breakthroughs. It's called the market. Eventually the market, financial, customers, figure out what works and what doesn't work. And we still, I think, have a prerogative to let the market do it because it's simply too complex for the government to choose. It's too complex for anyone to choose. If you take a look at a semiconductor manufacturing plant and just look at one row of process technology, 30, 40 machines, 100 different chemicals, there's over a quadrazillion different choices that engineers have to make to do that one process line. No one can predict in advance and control that process, only the market. But I think it is really incumbent for governments to get much smarter about this. And I th also think it is incumbent for governments, especially working on these issues, I think geopolitically for there to be joint knowledge or joint facts. We may disagree on the policy, we may disagree on the politics, we may disagree on the objectives. Different countries are different, but we should agree on the facts. So one of the things I proposed is, could we have a joint think tank of business leaders and technological leaders? Their job is not to make policy. Their job is barely even to make recommendations, but their job is to put together and say, this is what's going on. This is what matters. This is what doesn't matter. This is the process. These are the technologies. This is the status. And if we could do that in a joint way and have an ability for top decision makers to see that, they could make better decisions. Now, in terms of standards, mechanisms, uh, processes, this would require some kinds of alignment 
of understanding of values and also um, agreements on values. Um, now, how do you as a tech expert who has been an, a business executive understand the word so-called values different from let's say what the politicians have been saying about ideologies, ideological values. Tell us more about that. I come from Intel and the origin and genesis of Intel was the personal PC, which was that our technology at Intel is designed to empower the individual to take technology and to use it for what the individual cares about. And that is a value that matters to me, and that's a value that I was taught as I grew up in this region. Not everyone has the same values as I do. And some people believe that technology is maybe for a broader good, or maybe it's for control, or maybe it's for other things. And I don't want to judge those values as better or worse than mine. But we limit ourselves if we say, we'll never solve these problems because of values. I bet you if we look at Let's say we're taking a look at the problems around aligning on approval of large language models between the US and China. I bet 95% of the issues are technical, structural, procedural, legal. And if there's a few values on the side, we could probably put those to the side and solve the rest. So I don't, I don't think our primary issue on this is ideological or other things. I think the primary issue is we got to do the hard work and I think there's a lot of goodwill to do the hard work, but we got to put the procedures in place and the processes in place to do the hard work to make this alignment. Since you've been working in China and also other countries long time as an executive in technology companies, you work with both sides for sure before. So how do you see the efforts made by different sides to deal with the current misty water, shall we say. To you, um, as a tech executive, how do you see the world, you know? How would you describe it? How would you see the world? It's a big question. First of all, I don't think there's two sides. I've never, I don't think it's that stark. People are not defined by their passport. I don't think that's true. There's a lot more going on than just that. But there is, I think, some things going on. And I think that, for instance, I think the biggest change is that 10 years ago, you would create a business strategy, and it would be business and technology focused, and at the end, you'd make sure that government relations-wise, it would just work. Now, people are bringing government relations and geopolitics to the forefront as an equal input. As I said, it needs to solve geopolitics, business and technology at the same time. But geopolitics is not more important because again, just because you're doing something that a government likes, it's, it could still be a terrible business and you'll still go bankrupt. You still have to get people to buy your products. This is still a product and customer business. But how are people changing? So specifically, frankly, many global companies are reevaluating their footprint and their business in China right now. Part of that is to do to some of the economic challenges that China has and potentially the future growth of the market. I think a lot of that has to do with the structure of the technology industry and how it's very competitive, margins are relatively low, maybe it's not as profitable as other markets. 
and geopolitics does play a role. I think there's, for big companies that have a large footprint here and have a business here, they want to keep that business to be successful. Sometimes that means keeping it part of the global business. Sometimes that means maybe isolating it and bifurcating and making it in China for China. For every com company, that's a different evaluation. For companies with, frankly, for companies with a smaller footprint or less exposure, right, they're facing an issue where they say, do I really want to make the investment? Do I really want to work hard to build this business? Or is it, should I just keep it small? And I think the challenge is there's many companies that have not entered the China market today, maybe growing or small. And this is the challenge today. Too many of them are deciding not to make the entry today. So whatever China can do to be more attractive to new companies entering would be very powerful then. For Chinese companies, they are also reevaluating in a couple of directions. One is they're reevaluating where do they play in the technology stack and how do they play? Frankly, traditionally, most Chinese companies and technology grew up by leveraging American source technology and adding a little bit of localness to it. The great Chinese internet companies were all built with American semiconductors. Now they're thinking, well, I either can continue that partnership with my American partner, that has risks, I can make the chip myself, that has risks, or I can use and leverage a Chinese or locally developed chip that also has risks. And what I wouldn't say is there's any universal decision. A lot of people are hedging their bets by doing all three. They're actually looking at different options because the future is uncertain. The second thing, and I think that this is great, China is a big market, but China is only about 15 to 16% of global consumption of high tech. So if a Chinese company just focuses on China, they're ignoring 84% of the world. So these companies are now globalizing. But globalizing for Chinese technology companies has to change. The old days, you could just manufacture something in China and export it. Those days, there's still some of that, but most of the, the days of growth in that area are over. This is about, I'm going to have to go out and I'm going to build a business outside. Maybe I do some manufacturing outside R&D, but more and more companies are saying, I want to play in the North American market. And so in that market, I'm going to have a different brand name, I'm going to have different partners, I'm going to have different investors, and I'm going to be a truly global company. So these are some of the changes that people see, and this is a new form of globalization. And I think for Chinese companies, that's great. Because I think, the, I think the more, I've always noticed, the more that a Chinese company is driven by the market, and the more global it is, the more successful it always is. So thank you so much, Chris, for all the input and insights. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Also on AI, recently I talked to Ya Qin Zhang, the chair professor and dean of Tsinghua's Institute for AI Industry Research. Dean Zhang was the president of Baidu from the year 2014 to 2019. Prior to that, he was a Microsoft executive for 16 years. Here is my latest conversation with him. Professor Zhang, what a good pleasure to see you once again. Likewise, it's, it's <laughs> great to see you. How do you see the technologies evolutionized? In the general direction of uh, you know, bigger models, better models, uh, models are more aligned with uh, human behavior and human value. Uh, we also look, uh, uh, you know, also look at uh, this in terms of how it actually could achieve new tasks, uh, can automate in terms of uh, uh, not only conversation, but also writing codes 
uh, and also able to help us uh, to do a lot of the, the, the works uh, that we cannot envision uh, today. Uh, for example, it will connect to the physical world, it will connect to the uh, biological world. And so we uh, need to be uh, very, very cautious, uh, careful. Uh, in terms of how we actually make those connections, because uh, if it stays in the information world, mm -hmm. it is okay. But if we help you write letters, uh, write an email, uh, better summary, and it, it arguments your, the capability to uh, find information, I think that is that is great. But if it's going to control uh, a ton of cars, <laughs> if we're going to uh, control robots, mm -hmm. uh, and and also connect to critical information, like financial information, transaction information, uh, we need to uh, be cautious and also set some boundaries in between. There is a geopolitics, uh, as we see in our world today, together with many other complicated factors, whether AI will provide open source to uh, users around the world. That's a very interesting question, isn't it? As a scientist, how do you see that possibility? Right. Well, you always have a a few different uh, classes, right? Some yes. companies will open the source, mm -hmm. some some don't. You know, open actually initially uh, had open source, and then you know with the GPT three and, and later uh, they are not as open as as it would. But there are other companies, you know, open open source. We we see most companies actually open their the data, the source, the model. Uh, and here in China, a lot of companies have also opened open the source and the model. For example, most of the models we built actually are open for the entire industry, you know, for academia. Uh, so you, know, you will always see that uh, open and close, uh, that work hand in hand. And, uh, uh, just move forward. What do you see are the advantages and disadvantages for companies, for example, commercial entities, to uh, provide the open source or not? Yeah, I will, I will respect different decisions. In sure. open source, of course, uh, uh, it is open so others can build upon that, yeah. right? And you also receive benefits from the openness of others. Uh, but you know, there are times certain companies, you want to move uh, with their own proprietary code. I think that is fine. Uh, we always have uh, that model from the PC days <laughs> and, and the mobile days. Uh, but overall, I would think uh, open source and uh, open innovation uh, is uh, going to continue to be the main trend. Uh, that, that will just uh, increase the entire productivity and uh, just make the industry move Even faster. today? Even today, that's right. How would you compare some of the most uh, biggest, biggest names already, OpenAI, of course, and some of the others, uh, today on the international stage, the front runners? And how would you say the level of uh, the systems uh, developed by some Chinese entities, uh, global companies, uh, compared to the, their international counterparts? Uh, Chinese companies actually are doing fine. Chinese companies, if you look at uh, in the bigger spectrum of things, the US and China, are ahead of uh, all the other countries. Mm -hmm. uh, Chinese companies, I see at least over a dozen mm -hmm. different big language models uh, being released or planned, right? you know, starting with uh, Baidu and Alibaba, but also with essentially all the, the big tech companies. Uh, you know, I uh, often use a marathon as, uh, as an analogy. <laughs> with 42 kilometer a marathon, we are in the fifth mile, so we are still early. So I think eventually China uh, will uh, be in the same 
uh, same path <coughs> and, and uh, in the same place or even ahead, uh, especially when you get to the application, you know, implementation, get to scale. Uh, so if you, you know, again, going back to history, looking at uh, mobile internet, Right. China actually, at a little bit later part, China is actually ahead of U.S. in terms of uh, the scale, in terms of uh, connectivity, uh, the experience. Uh, you know, WeChat is a great product, and uh, TikTok, you know, short video, uh, and 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 the digital payment. China actually uh, were ahead. Uh, so I think you know, in the AI overall, uh, I'm confident that China uh, will become a very important player in the world. Professor Zhang Yaqin, the Dean of AI Research Institute with Tsinghua University. That's all the time we have for today. If you'd like to know more, search World Insight on the YouTube channel and also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Tian Wei. On behalf of my team, thanks for being with us. Bye for now.